Hey friend, this is Ryan Thomas. We're so blessed and grateful you're listening to On the Road and supporting Faith Radio. You are quite simply the best and we appreciate you so much. Enjoy the show. Discovering stories of courage, determination, and hope. Welcome to Faith Radio's On the Road. Now, here's Ryan Thomas. While the life of an archaeologist digging the treasures of the Holy Land is just a little different from what we've seen in the movies. Amanda Hope Haley has been there. She's a scholar, author, and an archaeologist who's worked multiple fascinating sites and just released her new book exploring her time there. The red-haired archaeologist digs Israel. We'll talk ground-penetrating radar, why you can't keep the pottery you just so gently restored, and how uncovering the secrets of the past can so richly bring our Bibles to life as she joins us for the second time on the road. The warmest of returning welcomes to you, Amanda. How's this fine day treating you, friend? Really wonderful. Um, We're in Tennessee. We've had lots of storms and stuff lately, tornadoes, but it is a bright, sunshiny, perfect day outside, and that's just flooding in. It's wonderful. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Did you experience any of the surprising, unorthodox, southern, severe winter weather this year? We we are in Chattanooga, and it we're in like a, a bowl basically in Appalachian mountains and Nashville north of us got hit with everything. And of course like Alabama and Georgia got all that stuff too. And it just went around us. So okay. we would have, you know, some weather, but we didn't even really have much snow this year. Oh. It, uh, it just kind of goes around Chattanooga. We're kind of strangely protected here. Now uh, we were able to establish this uh, really well in our first interview with you, which we enjoyed so much. If you, I want to discover and chase more about Amanda after this interview. Uh, You can just look for Amanda Hope Haley. You can just search that at myfaithradio.com and find it. But the thing we should definitely say, the love for archaeology, the love for history, there is something that the the tremendous Harrison Ford, he had a role to play in this. (laughs) Tell me about your relationship with Indiana Jones. (laughs) First off, I mean, I loved him. So I think the first movies came out in like early 80s. I was born in 81, so I really grew up with them. And I mean, I I as a kid, I think everybody who's ever seen those movies, most people love them. And I guess part of me just sort of wanted to do what he wanted to do. And uh, when I was in fifth grade, I had um, a in, in school, I did a semester where we actually studied a little bit of archaeology mm. and that sort of solidified things. And um, then when I went to college, I studied archaeology. And when I really started studying it formally was when I realized as awesome as Indiana Jones is and as much fun as he is to watch, he's not really an archaeologist. He's more of a no. more of a grave robber, no. you know, or, or something like that. <laughs> Sad to say, <laughs> real life oh. archaeology doesn't have all those awesome swashbuckling moments, typically. Oh. Um, but Indiana Jones, I think, has been great for the field in that he made it interesting to people. Um, you know, kids do grow up watching him, and you want to learn more about the field. And so I think he's simultaneously archaeology's best publicist 
and also like the worst example of an archaeologist ever. <laughs> <laughs> He's both of those things. Um, but I mean, I love him. I had the the Raiders theme. It was my ringtone for years oh. when I was in college and grad school. So you know, I soft spot in my heart for archaeology for uh, Indiana Jones. It'll it'll remain. <laughs> I have to give you plaudits on two things already. Mm. Uh, first, for introducing the word swashbuckling to the conversation, which is not <laughs> one you get to use every day. So thank you for that, first of all. And then secondly, you said you went to college. You did not say these words, which most Americans would love to be able to say, that you went to Harvard, which is pretty impressive. That's that's impressive humility. Thank you for that. Uh, I, and I went for grad school too. And honestly, kids... Uh, young adults who go to Harvard for grad school. Um, I, I don't know that it's different when you go for undergrad because for undergrad, you know, those kids get like the Hogwarts experience with you know, having the houses and all that. And, you know, it, it's, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. But when you're there for grad school, I mean, you're just working yourself to death between, you know, trying to A, pay the bills and pay the tuition. And then also, of course, the work is very, very challenging. So um, it, it was, um, it, it was more work than fun for me. <laughs> mm, understood. But I did love my time there, honestly. It, it was a great experience. I mean, basically that sets the scene. You fall in love with this whole field early in your life, mm -hmm. but the run-up to this book is really your return to the field and to the digs after a 15-year absence, right? How did that come yeah. about? A man named David Capes, um, who I, he was a lead scholar on the Voice Bible Translation Project, he ended up getting a position at Wheaton College. And um, Wheaton College, the head of the archaeology department there, a man named Dan Master, the two of them got talking to each other, and Dan remembered me from when I was at Harvard and uh. digging in Ashkelon, because he, he was one of the heads of the digs back then. And so they started talking and got in touch with me, and they invited me to come out to Shimron and my publisher loves the idea and you know <laughs> here we are um it all it all just kind of came back around in the most unexpected and delightful and wonderful way amanda hope haley is with us today she's a lover of the bible a scholar author and archaeologist and the new book is called the red-haired archaeologist digs israel and you can't see this over the radio but amanda <laughs> i can confirm you do in fact have red hair I do. I, I was born this way. Yes. <laughs> I have big curly red hair. <laughs> so tell Shimron, am I saying that mm -hmm. properly? First of all, you are saying that correctly. Oh, yes. I kind of, I have to admit I cheated. I listened to a couple other podcast interviews that you did before this, but all right, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, uh, a fascinating place And the way you present this, which is interesting is you say, well, there's so many fascinating places to dig in the Holy land. People would say, mm -hmm. Tell Shimron. I mean, is this really that exciting? But actually, yeah, kind of, right? It is. It is. And um, I, I can't talk a whole lot about Shimron because it's, um, it, it's not my site. I was just volunteering and working there. Um, so I can, I can tell you what has already been published about it. And Daniel Master, who is uh, one of the people in charge of it, he, after... After Harvard's Ashkelon excavation closed down, he was basically asked, 
who, where, where do you want to dig? If you could pick anywhere in Israel, where would you pick? And he selected this site. And I'm not sure how much of this he knew going in, but it turns out that Shimron, it's, it's mentioned a couple of times in the Bible, but it's, it's just a name, like in a list of names. Nothing super fantastic really ever happened there. So if you've never heard of it, that's totally fine. I don't think I'd heard of it before <laughs> I went. But um, what's cool about it is it was on, um, it was on a trade route where it, all the people who were living there would have been trading very frequently with Jerusalem and with other major cities in Israel. And they had discovered that it was continuously occupied from the early Bronze Age, maybe even down into the Chalcolithic Age, all the way up to the present. There have always been people there um, on the tell in one part or another. And so not only does it have this incredible calendar that, you know, the archaeologists can dig into it and see the entire history of this place for thousands and thousands of years, but it also had not been previously excavated. So nothing had been disturbed. And so it was Mm. just a chance for somebody to go in and have fresh eyes on a site. So that's that's what makes it really neat. And what they're learning from it is a lot about trade interaction and the way this relatively large city interacted with much larger cities in the area. So you're learning a lot about what life was like during biblical times based on what's being turned up. One of the really fascinating things that I've heard you say in some of your interviews is the more that we know in an archaeological perspective – the more we need to wait to know. And you spoke about this specifically in terms of a lot of us saw those headlines about the new discoveries relating to the Dead Sea Scrolls. So unpack that a little bit for me. The more we know, the more we need to wait to know. I I think we we go into an area, um, so maybe we've known something from the Bible, We, we think we know something, and we go into an area looking for what we think we already know, for instance, I know in our, our last session, we talked a little bit about you know the innkeeper and Jesus and him being born in a manger. And a lot of us read what's in the Bible, and we think we know Jesus is born in a barn based on what we've been told through tradition and the ways that we interpret what is in the Bible based on our current experiences. Well, when archaeologists you know, go to try to, let's say they go to try to find exactly the place, exactly the inn, if you want to say that, where Jesus was born, they're going to discover that it wasn't a barn. So if you go into a place looking for what you think is there, sometimes you may find, you may think you find it, um, and, and sometimes you won't. And so what comes out of the dirt, we need to look at it with fresh eyes and try to interpret it for what it is and for what surrounds it and not for what we think it should be. Mm. Well, this, this really does come alongside that then. One of the things you mentioned last time that sort of grabs your ear, you said, you know, it is not my job as an archaeologist to prove the Bible. I don't need to do that. That's, that's not on me. And then also unpacking that alongside the truth that to be a good archaeologist, you need to try to get beyond your biases. Could you, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say dig into that now. I didn't mean to, but it just happened. <laughs> no, I'm it's sorry. fine. That's, that's the beauty of this title. Like uh, there, there's so many puns and I love puns. I do. Thanks. <laughs> so um, that is, that is, a, I think, the, that's kind of the core problem almost with biblical archaeology. Um 
the first thing that I was taught when I started studying this was if you go looking for it, you will find it. And so um, if, if people who are digging go to a particular site looking to find a certain thing, they may even fool themselves into thinking that they have found it. That's bad archaeology. That's bad science. You don't want to do that. Anytime you're looking to discover something, you want to go in with an open mind. And so you want to start there. Well, the origins of biblical archaeology in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it was uh, Bible-believing individuals going to the Holy Land looking to find specific artifacts that, you know, not only would be really cool additions to their collections or look great in the British Museum, but that would also, quote-unquote, prove the Bible. And that, sadly, is backward. Um, I think a lot of people think that biblical archaeology exists to prove the Bible. And number one, if if you are a believer that, you know, the Bible is sacred text and that it is, you know, God breathed and given to us, God doesn't need us humans running around proving what he's already given mm. to us and told us is sacred, number one. Um, and then number two, when we go out and try to do that very thing, if our goal is I want to prove that what God said is true, then we, we may actually end up doing damage because we may look for we we may look for something that we think is evidence and then you know down the road people may reinterpret it and you may end up inadvertently disproving the bible or um you, giving biblical archaeology a bad reputation um so that people you know cease looking at what is good about science and it, the ways that science can come alongside scripture and the ways that they can work together people will stop seeing that and just reject archaeology out mm -hmm. of hand which is a shame because archaeology is super important i believe to help us understand and contextualize the Bible. For me, I'm a Christian. Scripture comes first. I believe the Bible. But when I go out into the field and I'm digging and, you know, hoping to find, you know, I mean, we all hope to find the Ark of the Covenant or Noah's Ark or something like that. What we more typically find are everyday household type artifacts. But even those artifacts help us to understand scripture better because what's being described, especially in the Old Testament, are ways of life that we can't imagine, that we can't picture, that we can't visualize. And that's where archaeology can help us. I'm terribly afraid that I have to ask you a question that I've already asked you before. And it's not, no. you brought it up, but it's, mm. it's not your fault. This is my fault. I just can't get over this. <laughs> I have to ask it, but first, let me just say, if you're just tuning in to On the Road on Faith Radio, this is Amanda Hope Haley. She loves the Bible. She's a scholar, an author, an archaeologist, and her brand new book, which is fascinating, is The Red-Haired Archaeologist Digs Israel. You mentioned the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. And I can't help but ask. It was just in the news again, and I don't remember. It was the, I think it was the location that, it is perpetuated that it may be in Ethiopia. I think that was the news story that I saw. Do you have any hope? Do you have any belief that we may eventually discover the location of the Ark of the Covenant? Oh, I'm going to give you such a boring answer. <laughs> <laughs> and that is that I, it, it's not something I need. It's not something I strive for. It's not something I really look for. I feel like when you look at the history of Jerusalem and you know, in 70, the way Rome came in and tore everything, looted everything, burned everything, everything yeah. went to the ground. Um, I feel like 
the Romans more than likely either took it because it was valuable and covered in gold and everything else and spirited off to some place who knows where, you know, or it was completely destroyed. And if it was just crushed beneath the rubble of the temple, then finding it, I mean, would basically, it would require three major religions, um, the international community and everyone coming together to decide to, to change what is what Jerusalem looks like today, mm. and I mean, basically, basically take down Al-Aqsa Mosque and, and that entire um, that entire uh, complex that is up there. So no, I mean, I I don't think it's going to be found. Um, but you know, that there there's the tradition that yes, it was spirited away in the night to Ethiopia because of the connections with the Queen of Sheba there. Um, I, I know from studying other things that there are artifacts and documents that are literally lost inside the Vatican. Um, I mean, it's, I was talking to a friend about this recently, and she suggested, you know, I really believe it's in the Vatican. I was like, well, I mean, it's possible. That's Rome. It mm-hmm. could be there. Um, definitely, the Vatican does have all sorts of um, uh, fragments and things like that, that, you know, scholars will literally go into the Vatican and discover things that have just been sitting there for hundreds of years <laughs> that people have forgotten even existed, that things that haven't been translated yet. This is especially true for, like, non-canonical gospels, those kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, it's even possible it's somewhere in the Vatican. There are a lot of options out there, but <laughs> thankfully, um, it's, it's not something that, that we need for our yeah. faith. We don't need to find it. Um, but yeah, it would be really cool if an Indiana Jones figure, you know, popped up and found it. I don't think the Nazis ever got a hold of it. <laughs> okay. I feel like it was lost long before then. <laughs> there were no Nazis and Sean Connery more than likely was not involved. <laughs> uh, sadly, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for doing that. You're, you're so kind to indulge us in our geekery. So thank you. Oh, I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's why we enjoy talking to you so very much. There, okay, more geekery right now. Yeah. Uh, when I think, when we think about this, we're imagining the hand tools, the trowels. You're out mm-hmm. there in the desert, but you talk a little bit in uh, the red-haired archaeologist digs Israel about some of the technology that gets used now. And one of the things you mentioned was there's actually ground-penetrating radar now where they look down under and they can actually get a sense of what's down there before they even start digging. Yes, yes. That, especially in a site like Tel Shimron that had not been excavated before, that is so important. Because when you go to Israel and, you know, anyone, if you just go to Israel and you just sort of, if you're outside of a city and you just scan the horizon, like you'll see these big bumps occasionally. And there's a good chance that most of those maybe are, are ancient civilizations that have been, that have been long buried. And so when archeologists go out and try to decide, okay, where am I going to dig? They'll take into consideration, you know, the bumps on the horizon. 
But then how is that bump, you know, how is it in relation to a body of water or other cities? Um, or, or is it possible that this is an area that's been described in texts? Like there's, there's so much that archaeologists can do before they even get on site to say, I think this place might have something good. Well, but now they can even take a further step after they've identified their tell and take ground penetrating radar and yeah, get it, get an image of what's there and even see, you know, maybe how, how dense findings are because as a tell develops, what happens is different civilizations, they come in, you know, your first, let's say, early Bronze Age guys came in and they built, and for whatever reason, they abandoned their homes, and erosion came in, and all of that fell down, and then a couple hundred years, thousand years later, however long, another civilization comes in, and they may build directly on top of those people, or they may, may build, you know, 300 yards to the north for whatever mm. reason. Well, so the tells build up in different ways. And so there may be different sections of it that have uh, deeper concentrations of, of artifacts. And so it's great for the archaeologists to be able to see before they even dig in the ground, hey, maybe this is a good spot. It looks like it's going to have lots of layers of, of different kinds of things in it. Um, so it honestly, I mean, it saves a ton of time mm. and money and also it can you know, keep you from damaging something. If you see that one particular area is very, very rich, you don't want to go in and, you know, take a chunk out of it with some heavy machinery. You want to start from the beginning using, you know, maybe smaller tools, hand tools. Another of the fascinating things, there's so many fascinating things in the book, but one that really stuck <laughs> yeah. out to me, I think the picture we have of archaeology is that you go down and you find this fully intact artifact and you bring it out carefully and then you you sort of brush it off and it starts to gleam in the sun and it's this this grand almost spiritual experience but you've said no really most of the things you find they aren't intact at all mostly mostly that it happens i mean in, when I was in Shimron in 2019, there were several occasions where, especially burials, if you find a burial, people often were buried with trinkets and items. And so those are areas where you may get an, an oil lamp or an oil lamp filler or something like that will come out intact because it was it was protected when it was buried as opposed to um, it be, you know, that that item being on a shelf when the city was destroyed and it falling and breaking. Mm. So it does happen that these things are found, but you know, when you get out there and you're digging the first day, you're literally turning up pottery everywhere. In fact, if you just walk on top of a tell, often you're walking on pottery. Uh, that happens. It just rises to the surface a little bit and gets kicked up. Um, so it's it's great when you first hold it. I, I was working in like the Middle Bronze era back in 2019, and you hold this first piece, and it's like, yes, like this hasn't seen light, and you know. 4,000 years. This is amazing. And you put it in the bucket and you keep going and, and you do that several hundred times over the course of a day until, you know, it's lost some of its shine. But then it really loses its shine later on today when you realize you have to wash and dry and, and look at and catalog every single one of it. Oh my. Even though you may know from the beginning, like if it's a, if it's a broken piece of pottery that is, you know, flat, doesn't have any sort of decoration on on it. It isn't, you know, a handle or doesn't, doesn't have anything definitive about it. Like you can't tell, oh, this was a pitcher or something. Then those pieces are called non-diagnostic. 
And so every time you pull up a non-diagnostic piece, you know, when you're sitting there mm. in the dirt, man, I'm going to have to do so much work for this thing and it's going to go in a bag and it's never going to be seen again. <laughs> There's a little bit of monotony to it. The worst part though, at least the worst part for me, it's all of those non-diagnostic pieces. Everything that comes out of the ground is, is owned by the state of Israel. And those pieces that can't be used to identify anything, sadly, you know, we as volunteers or you know, no one can actually take that home. It would be so nice oh. to just have this little piece of pottery and be able to take it out, but you will be stopped at the airport and they will take it away from you because it's, it's all the property of Israel. Oh, of course. So that's, wow. That's hard. That's hard because you're like, I know this is essentially going to be thrown away. Can't I just take it home? No. Wow. No, you can't. <laughs> that, is, that is an emotional moment right there. <laughs> it is. I worked so hard to clean oh. you. Oh. I you. <laughs> well, I, I'm kind of sad because I'm looking at my clock here and it's saying, yeah, it's really time to wrap this up at this point because oh, we're no. out of time. I can't really believe that, but it appears to be true, Amanda. <laughs> We have a good time together. We <laughs> do. Oh, we do. And thank you so much for being here once again. Amanda Hope Haley has been with us. The book is called The Red-Haired Archaeologist Digs Israel. And I know this is available all over the Fruited Plain, wherever fine mm-hmm. books are sold. But if we want to have a, a one-stop shop on the web, where should we start? I mean, Amazon has it all so nicely organized together. Um, or even better than that, actually, is my website. You can get to anything from my website. All of my books are there, my little podcast, um, just about everything. And this is important, too. The book was going to be, um, originally it was going to be color, and then COVID happened and cutbacks. So it has black and white pictures in it. But oh. if you go to my website and you sign up for my newsletter, then I will send you a password and you get access to, it's, it's around 150 color images that we were not able to include in the book. So sign up for the website and you get to, uh, or sign up for the newsletter and you'll get to see and have basically this, this color photographic companion to go along with the reading. I have it all organized by chapter. <laughs> the red-haired archaeologist digs Israel. I have enjoyed reading it so much. Uh, I, I can't say that everything that I enjoy is going to be awesome, but I'm just going to say that this is awesome, if I can go ahead and say that. Amanda, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for being here. It was just lovely to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for sharing in the story of this latest episode of Faith Radio's On the Road. For more on today's conversation and the full podcast archive of all our episodes, look for On the Road when you visit MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks so much for listening to On the Road. Programming like this happens because of your incredible support. You can learn more about partnering financially at MyFaithRadio.com. And we'd be so glad to connect with you during the week on social media. Just search for On the Road with Ryan Thomas on Facebook. And our Twitter handle is at OnTheRoadRyan. Until next time, God bless you, my friend.